Brett Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The Middle East in the late teens of the 21st century has to be one of the most continuously baffling and dangerous mysteries to nearly all Americans. It's been this way ever since the breakup of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War. Before that, it was a unified collection of tribes under various sultans. But knowing there were major oil deposits there, the British, and to a lesser extent the French, determined to control that ever more important resource. Of course, the world today still relies on petroleum, and ever since the end of the fighting in that largely unresolved war, there have been powerful strategic and economic alignments and big interest politically and security-based with the biggest guerrilla in the room, Saudi Arabia. For decades, they have been understood to be the sensible ones, the most open to the West, the moderates in a sea of extremists. Well, it ain't necessarily so. Just recently, the new, younger Saudi ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was received with royal fanfare in Washington, the White House, the Kennedy Center, and a gala dinner. What could be wrong with that? Well, for one thing, Saudi Arabia is one of the most repressive regimes on Earth. Really? Not the image we've been receiving for the last 50 years or so. Last June, the new prince, Mohammed bin Salman, ousted his cousin from power. Last October, President Trump's closest advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, made an unannounced visit to Riyadh, the capital where he stayed up late planning strategy with the crown prince, the Washington Post reported at the time. A week later... Mohammed bin Salman launched what he called an anti-corruption crackdown, detaining hundreds of Saudi royals and businessmen. Meanwhile, the most obvious problem with Washington's continued coziness with Saudi Arabia is its war on Yemen, which is producing a humanitarian catastrophe. With us today to shed some much-needed light into the dark recesses of American backing of this regime is Akbar Shahid Ahmed, who covers U.S. foreign policy for Huffington Post. Based in Washington, D.C., where he's broken stories on issues like how Islamophobic activists are shaping White House policy and what Congress is doing about Egypt's authoritarianism, he's also reported from across the Muslim-majority world on matters from threats to journalists working under U.S.-friendly Kurdish governments to how Saudi-Iran rivalry 
plays out in nuclear-armed Pakistan. See, it is confusing and it is dangerous. He grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, where he started regularly contributing to the English-language paper Dawn at age 14. He's also written for Newsline magazine Generation Progress and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. We're going to look at what's in it for the Saudis and for the Americans and what perhaps some unintentional side effects are for both regimes here in uh, the U.S. and in Riyadh. Uh, Saudi Arabia is consistently one of the bigger players when it comes to foreign influence in Washington, according to Josh Stewart, a spokesman for the Sunlight Foundation, which tracks money and influence in politics, and there's a lot of money and influence coming down from Saudi Arabia. That span, he goes on to say that spans both uh, what you'd call the inside game, which is lobbying and government relations, and the outside game, which is public relations and other things that tend to reach a broader audience than just lobbying. And that is an important audience, all of us, you know, just our understanding, our assumptions. Talk to us a bit, please, Akbar, about the history of Saudi uh, relations with the U.S. since the end of the Second War. What has been their interest in special relations with Washington? Sure, Brett. Thanks for having me. Um, the Saudis initiated a relationship with the U.S. after the Second World War uh, with a famous visit between FDR and Ibn Saud, who was the founder of the modern Saudi state. He was this really the head of the House of Saud and this pioneering warrior king. And for the Saudis, they'd been slowly expanding their control over the region of Arabia they now control prior to the Second World War, but they'd been doing that under the auspices of the British Empire. And you know, post-World War II, the Brits were, were starting to step back. They obviously were not looking as powerful as they had previously. For the Saudis, suddenly the U.S., which had really been the savior of Europe, seemed like a better bet and a better patron, particularly in terms of security. At that time, oil was not as much of a factor. Really? I'm surprised oil wasn't as much of a factor after uh, World War II. They had it. Their, their sort of oil wealth and oil fabulousness that we now associate with them right. really comes following the initiation of this relationship. You know, you see the, the beginning of Aramco, uh, the Arab American, uh, uh-huh. the, the main Saudi state oil company. And that sort of comes after the initial contact uh, with FDR. I, I see. So, uh, yeah, it continued ever since. Now, with the, and they've had a lot of power over us. Uh, most of us are old enough to remember the uh, Arab oil embargo of, I think it was the early 70s, when uh, it seems like they had us quite literally over a barrel of oil. Uh, sorry about that. With the drop in the price of oil, however, how has that affected the stability of the domestic power of the Saudi royal family among its nearly 33 million non-royal subjects. It's a major concern for them. Oil is their biggest industry by far. The U.S. is a it has historically been a really big customer, but now it's not just the U.S. You know, it's, it's China is a major consumer. Japan is, South Korea, and the Europeans. So, so for the Saudis, oil is everything. As oil became less valuable in the last few years, uh-huh. that really made the regime start to think about what else can we provide our citizens if we can't give them the generous public benefits. You know, historically, often Saudis have had kind of 
uh, guarantees of government jobs, uh, a sense of entitlement to government-provided public housing that's fairly nice, uh, guarantees of sort of subsidies from one place or another or handouts from various princes or rulers. The tightening of that coffers, of course, they have a lot of money saved, but the tightening of that coffers has affected them. Uh, the price of oil has rebounded slightly from where it was in, say, 2013 or 2014, but still not where it was uh, at the beginning of, of this downturn. And so the Saudis have introduced more and more austerity measures, uh, and that is, that's, that's, uh, that's affecting their citizens. There's a sense that people have to work more, uh, but, but sort of where do they work? <laughs> because everything is, is funded by oil and is funded by the government. Right. Uh, so, so for Saudi citizens, non-royals, as you said, people are in a very tight spot because there isn't a kind of independent enterprise or industry for them to go into. Uh, and, and then there's a lot of non-Saudis in Saudi Arabia, you know, millions of folks from the Philippines, Pakistan, India, who've, who've worked there, forever Lebanese, Egyptians, and many of them are now leaving or in some cases being forced to leave yeah. uh, because of the scarcity of jobs and the sense of, well, the jobs should go to the Saudis. But if you've built your life in the kingdom for 35 years or 40 years, how are you going to go back to the Philippines and suddenly start over? Wow, that that is rather tough. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Akbar Shahid Ahmed, who covers U.S. foreign policy for Huffington Post. We're talking about Saudi power, what is behind it in the United States, how powerful they are. And the, the entire former Ottoman Empire, I assume, is, is Muslim. But there are some real differences in, in various religions. My understanding, and it's not a very good one, I'll admit, is that Wahhabism, which is the official uh, form of Muslim in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, is not uh, everybody's cup of tea, shall we say. What's it like for the various, there are lots of different people from all over the world, as you say, who are there. Uh, how does Wahhabism uh, affect them? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so for instance, a lot of folks are Christians. You know, a lot of folks from the Philippines are Catholic. Yeah. There's not a lot of freedom to practice their religion. Uh, and then the, within Islam itself, Wahhabism is sort of one subgroup of, of one of the two main schools of Islam. Uh, Sunni yeah. Islam, which is followed by most people in Saudi Arabia, most people across the Arab world, and then there's Shia Islam. And there are Shia Arabs, there are Shia Saudis, in fact, uh, often who are brutally repressed and are seen as kind of double agents yeah. uh, because the main Shia country is Saudi Arabia's regional rival, Iran. So there's definitely that curtailment of, of worship. There's this sense of suspicion from the state. You might get more surveillance in some extreme cases. I mean, people are disappeared, you know, for years. You never yeah. hear from them because they're seen as potential threats to the stability of the regime. And Wahhabism in itself uh, has definitely developed this reputation as as extremely harsh and not something you'd want to live under. It's a very austere interpretation of Islam, which uh, tries to go back to the way Islam was practiced at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, um, you know, in the year 600, which mm. is quite a different situation than now, right? So that's why you hear about uh, measures like chopping off people's hands if they're caught stealing, which is official state policy, or beheadings, uh, and, and sort of very severe restrictions on the way women can dress in public or how they can operate. And that's, that's really not followed widely in the Muslim world outside of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's a very particular strain. Now, I, I, would, 
I wonder about uh, any kind of, with the drop in the price of oil, people kind of chafing at, at, at Saudi rule. I mean, it's nice when they have all this oil money and, every, and you know everything was just uh, dandy. People were living well. Uh, but without that, and, you know, it's interesting to me, the image that has been cultivated in the West for so many decades that they're more modernistic, they're more West-leaning than the other uh, countries. And I was interesting recently on, on 60 Minutes, boy, they've had some interesting shows, uh, the prince came across as a very reasonable, moderate reformist who's going to transform Saudi Arabia into this modern Saudi nation. Is, is, is this a, a false narrative? What is his real mission? How, how successful is he being in this, uh, uh, you know, uh, grand trip across the United States? Uh, well, it's a very particular and um, it's a very Western-influenced narrative he's trying to do, right? Because he's quite conscious of the fact that the Saudis have been seen as hardline and fundamentalist Muslims in the West. Uh, so he's really trying to say, well, look, we can be liberal, we can let women have jobs, we can let women drive. All of that said, the Saudis have spent 80 years cultivating a certain strain of thinking among their millions, up to 20 million Saudi subjects, right? And then exporting that to people in Pakistan, to people in oh, Europe, wow. to people sort of all over Muslim communities. That doesn't go away overnight. So while the crown prince can, can make these statements of, we want to return to more liberal and moderate uh, interpretation of Islam, well, A, that's never been Saudi history. That's, that's the basis of their state has been Wahhabism, which we were just talking about, this very austere interpretation that's been associated with the prince's family, with the Sauds, for over 200 years. Uh, so, this, so he's kind of being disingenuous when he sort of says, oh, we were only like this because of 1979 and the revolution in Iran and the mullahs there. That's really untrue. Uh, I think there's a sincere desire among him and his advisors, some of whom I've spoken with, and, and many of them are very well-trained, Western-educated. There is a sincere desire to broaden people's minds and exposures and perspectives, but I think it's really challenging, uh, especially in an mm. environment where people, you can't sort of give people oil money or benefits to, to make them happy, and I, that doesn't go away. Yeah. So, so I think he has his really his work cut out for him, and, and it remains to be seen if he's willing to do it in a really hard way or if it's just posturing for the West. There's been investigations of uh, some of the most horrible kind of export, uh, exports of Wahhabism, like Saudi textbooks that talk of Jews as, you know, the enemy or the devil, that talk about violence against Christians or against women or religious minorities. Those things haven't changed. In some cases, they're just continuing to be printed and being exported even more. Now, I have gotten the impression, again, maybe it's false, that that uh, the state of Israel uh, doesn't get, I mean, you know, they have their enemies, but that they kind of were working with, with the Saudis and that the Saudis also uh, were very much uh, fighting ISIS, which it seems ISIS was created by the American invasion of Iraq. They were, uh, uh, but, but what about their relation, Saudi's relation with the state of Israel. And that's a very, very touchy subject for most, I mean, most Muslims, I would think, would support a, uh, a Palestine. Right. 
Uh, it's absolutely touchy, but they've been, they've had feelers out for some time. You know, they've had high-ranking Saudi officials. They can't really have direct contacts because that's still right. perceived to be too controversial, but they'll sort of have a, a cutout. You know, someone one step removed from the prince will appear at an event with an Israeli general or an Israeli lawmaker. And certainly the the two main enemies that the prince has identified are the same as the two main enemies of, I wouldn't even say just like all the people of Israel, but the right-wing Likud government of Israel, you know, the the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. And those two main enemies are, one, Iran, and two, the Muslim Brotherhood, very broadly defined, this transnational movement of uh, Muslims who believe that Islam should be infused in their political life. And those two main enemies are, are... targets for Saudis and Israelis all over the world. So, for instance, in Washington, where I'm based, you'll often see both Saudi uh, lobbyists for Saudi and Israel talking about the, the horrors of Iran or the horrors of the Muslim Brotherhood. So there's a very clear tacit coordination. The extent to which it's being there's a collusion or there's an actual strategizing together, that's really unclear for us now. And it does seem uh, uh, there is this war in Yemen. It, it just a terrible war that's, that's creating cholera and, and so many people are dying. Uh, and I'm not sure about, you know, why, what this, well, the Saudi role is they're bombing them. I mean, they are bombing uh, 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 Yemen, the people of Yemen. And it seems like they're uh, portraying it as a proxy war between the Saudis and Iran. Uh, not unlike how <laughs> the U.S. Uh, had a proxy war in Vietnam, which was not the case at all. We were fighting the Vietnamese people, not the, the Russians, not Stalin. You know, it was the Vietnamese people. And I wonder how similar it is. So this is a big subject, the, the, the antipathy between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Is it just to see who's the, who's the biggest boy in the schoolroom? You know, I, what, what is going on here? What's that all about? And there's a lot yeah, to talk about. Yeah. I would say there's a, there's a temptation, and people have done this, politicians from across the spectrum have presented it this way. President Barack Obama did it repeatedly. There's a temptation to really essentialize the conflict and say, well, Saudi Arabia follows the Sunni school of Islam, Iran follows the Shia school, therefore, you know, never the twain can meet, and they've been fighting for over a thousand years. I don't think it's really about that Shias and Sunnis live side by side across the Muslim world. Hmm generally peacefully. Um, it's a lot to do about the structures of their governments. Iran's current leadership, the Islamic Republic, uh, rose up after 1979, after they over- overthrew the Shah, who was very similar in ways to the Saudi king. Right? So Iran is, is seen in the, by the Saudis as a revolutionary regime, as something that wants to replace an absolute monarchy, and, and especially important to note, a Western-friendly monarchy. So the Saudis look at that and say, wow, well, if it happened there, why can't it happen here? And uh, uh, we, we really don't want them to be able to export that kind of thinking, uh-huh. uh, which is not to say that Iran is any great democracy. Certainly, like, religious leaders have excessive influence. But it, it, it's, its structure is much more around being revolutionary, having folks from the lowest classes of society rise up in the Iranian military or the Iranian religious hierarchy, which is really different from the hereditary rule of the Saudis. So they see, uh, when they see Iranian influence around the region, they feel that it's closing in on them. They feel that Uh people who support this train of thinking are coming up. 
So perhaps, and I, I have wondered about this, the, the basis of the Saudi fury at Iran, anger, I mean, just so many policies, they just, they don't seem to like Iran, uh, is the concern about domestic tranquility. Is that right? That I mean, I, I can think there's not a lot of places that have a really active uh, royal family ruling the country, and the people are not citizens. They are subjects. So... Again, their concern is the, the the spread of the revolutionary idea that it may come to uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia and the royal family is the obvious target. Right. And uh, part of it is that, and then part of it is this sort of sense of uh, Saudi Arabia sees itself as the linchpin of the Western alliance system in the Middle East, and that's another point of co- of. Uh, cooperation or or amity with Israel. So they, they really feel that Iran wants to undermine that. Iran doesn't want to see American bases around the Middle East. It doesn't want to see British or French bases, for that matter. And the Saudis, have that's who they've worked with for 70 years. They don't know how to do it any other way. So for them, it's a real concern. Certainly is. And, and, you know, once you have power and there's a lot of more and more people who really don't want you in power... Things can happen, and in this in this war in Yemen, I don't know how many people have have died and been misplaced. Yemen, as I understand it, is a very very poor country. Saudi Arabia is a very very wealthy country. One of the items that seems to be on this uh, you know uh, tour of America for for the Saudi prince is to ensure continued U.S. support for the war against Yemen. Uh, why are the Saudis making war on Yemen? Is it, you know, that they, they you know, I, I'm not sure how much Iran really is in Yemen, other than it being perhaps an actual, uh, perhaps revolution there, the, the, uh, the Saudis, I mean, the uh, Houthis versus, uh, oh, straighten me out on this. The, the Saudi-backed government, yeah. Yeah, there's a Saudi-backed government, and then there's the... Uh, kind of revolutionary struggle. Why are the Saudis making this war on Yemen? And and what are some of the results of that war on the people of Yemen? There hasn't it hasn't been very high profile in the United States, but we do have a role. Yeah. Uh so the official estimates are that over ten thousand uh people at least have died. Um but that's just you know reported casualties. And then we right. have about seven million who are in who are on the brink of starvation, already seen as in extreme conditions, and then nineteen million displaced. So this is actually a bigger humanitarian crisis than Syria, uh, which has obviously dominated the headlines. Yeah. It's and and we have you know this is this is not even taking into account the fact that cholera is spreading really rapidly. You know, at, at one point I think there were thousands of cholera deaths per week. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of infectious disease and not a lot of medicine or food aid that's allowed in because there is a Saudi-led blockade of most of the coast of Yemen. In the war, the Iranians are definitely providing some support to this group, this militia group called the Houthis. Yes. And it's it's quite complicated because I think the Saudis in, in some ways have sort of had a self-fulfilling prophecy. They saw an Iranian hand there and so uh-huh. kept bombing and bombing and uh, so that the Houthis felt they really had to turn to Iran. Uh-huh. Uh, so definitely there's Iranian weaponry that's been identified there, Iranian long-range missiles that as recently as a few days ago were being sent by the Houthis towards, towards Saudi civilian areas within their kingdom. Uh, in the third year of the war, the U.S. provides 
aerial refueling, which basically allows the Saudi planes to keep going on longer and longer bombing runs. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to. Mm. Uh, and the U.S. provides intelligence uh, and some surveillance capabilities. They say it's not major, but most outside experts I've spoken to about it say, well, without this, the Saudis couldn't bomb the way they've been doing. Um, and from that point of view, they're thinking, look, Yemen is on our border. Yes, right. it's very small, but it's important for us that Yemen be friendly towards us. You know, if you talk to Saudi officials, they'll often say, well, how would the U.S. feel if, uh, you know, in a regime they hated, like, Russia, I guess, would be in Mexico, you know, bombing them or, or regaining power. So the Saudis really see it as an unfortunate necessity. Uh, the people of Yemen would probably say, well, you don't need to be killing us. Uh, and the Houthis are this, this Iran-backed group. They're still not that representative of the Yemeni people, so oh. it's hard to see it as a popular revolution against the Saudi-backed government. I think there are a lot of people just kind of caught in between oh, this wow. Iran-backed force and this Saudi-backed force. And I have heard that it, in addition to uh, providing, uh, you know, fueling up in the sky that keeps them, keeps them going, that some of the bombs are actually American bombs. And I would think the people on the ground, uh, kind of, it may be a secret to us in America, but the people there uh, are, I would think, pretty much aware of the uh, American uh, role in that war. What, what is the American role in the war? I mean, aside from refueling, is there other stuff? Yeah. Well, the bombs are actually are really huge and important because, I mean, the Saudis need American bombs. They're not, they're not producing their own bombs at home. So uh, thank you for reminding me of that. It's totally my mind. There's so many elements of this. There's American bombs, there's British bombs, there's French bombs, and a lot of European bombs uh, that are being purchased by Saudi Arabia, and importantly, not just by the Saudis, but by their major partner in this effort, the United Arab Emirates or the UAE, yes. which is another really powerful, really wealthy Arab regime that pushes a lot of this as a handmade in Saudis and kind of hides behind their skirts. Um, if those weapon supplies, you know, if, if the U.S. and others decide to stop selling them bombs, there would be a limit on how much bombing the Saudis could do. And presumably, you know, peace groups and activists say, well, then they'd have to end the war quicker. They wouldn't be able to just perpetuate it. The Saudis put in new orders for bombs all the time. Um, and there's been, there's been Senate votes over it, but it's never been successfully blocked. Obama temporarily blocked a shipment of about $500 million worth of bombs just before he left office, and Trump lifted that hold about two months into coming into office. Ah, oh, lovely. Yeah, we're, we're good at that. That's, that's one thing. Uh, I, I like the fact that the U.S. has so much culture that the world loves, our music, our art, our movies, but bombs and weapons. I don't know, so much money involved there. What have been some of the targets of the Saudi bombs made in the West? So there have been fragments of American and other Western bombs found at civilian infrastructure sites, so like hospitals, wells, okay. schools, uh, in a couple of instances, funerals and weddings. Okay. So uh, groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have found fragments of American bombs at locations like mm. that. Mm. And the Saudis have killed, in many instances, just civilians, you know, not even, say, one Houthi fighter among five civilians. They've just killed groups of civilians. Their argument has been, well, we're going to do better. We are improving our capabilities. And the American argument, particularly from the Trump administration, uh, but it is an argument from the Obama era, the American argument is 
their bombing will only be better if American intelligence keeps flowing to them. So if we don't lose our, if we don't use our influence on them, they'll be killing a million more civilians. Uh, which is kind of, <laughs> it, it, it's you know, it's up to you what you make of that argument. A lot of folks on Capitol Hill don't believe it. <laughs> I'm sure, and I do want to make sure to talk about their influence in Congress. But in the meantime, yeah. all right, the U.S. Saudis are dropping all these bombs. How we, the United States, it's important for the U.S. to to do business with the other nations of the former Ottoman Empire. There's a lot of people there. How is this? playing out with those other nations and you know egypt and uh, lebanon and jordan places like that they they can't be unaware of the u.s role in it how is all that playing out i I think it's a great point i think it's being very closely watched by a lot of other american partners in the region uh they feel right now that the u.s has kind of given in a way the saudis a blank check to do whatever they want uh, for as long as there's an argument to be made that Iran is present in Yemen. And so from, from those regimes' perspectives, you know, it's, it, there's a pro and a con. The pro is, great, well, if we decide we want to bomb our neighbor into oblivion, the U.S. will help us do it if we can sell them on thinking of strategic interest. The con is, of course, if you are the one being bombed, um, yeah. or, or sort of what the vulnerability there is, and, and whether U.S. thinking is being driven by strategy and rationality or just the desire to make money off war and uh, these kind of tendentious arguments for a war. So it's, it's, it's seen really as a strategic mistake around the region. Uh, most other officials and other governments would say you can never win a war in Yemen. You know, it's, it's just such a fractured country. Obviously, the Saudis are not Yemenis. They can't tell the Yemenis how to live their lives and they're not going to go in and invade and occupy. So what's the point of getting involved and tied up? Um, and I was talking to an, an official today from a from a Western government who was saying, well, look, this is great for the Iranians because it just makes the Saudis look bad all over the region because they keep bombing and bombing and it I would and hits think. civilians. It's embarrassing for the Saudis. It's embarrassing for the Americans. Yeah, it just plays right into their hands. Yeah. And, and, and you write that the United Nations says the ongoing conflict could result not only the worst famine in many years, which national security experts see as a gift to al-Qaeda and the self-described yeah. Islamic State. What the heck? Um, so al-Qaeda has many branches you know, all over various parts of the world, but sure. their branch in Yemen is one of their most potent and for, for years was described by American officials as the biggest threat to the American homeland. This was a place from which bombs actually trying to target, say, American airports or airliners were being planned in Yemen in, by al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So that's why you've seen successive American governments try to go after it, George W. Bush, Obama, and now Trump have all authorized continuing U.S. counter-terror operations against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the the Yemeni al-Qaeda. However, when the Saudis went in with this war in March of 2015, they're supporting this internationally recognized government, the Saudi-backed government. But that government doesn't have a lot of sway within the country, especially as the Houthis have expanded their control of various parts of Yemen. So they sort of looked around and said, well, who can we ally with here? And in a lot of cases, that ended up being these militias that are maybe, you know, al-Qaeda fighters one day and the next day fighters for the Saudi-backed, U.S.-backed government. And so the argument that some national security analysts make is you are giving training experience, in some cases, small arms and weaponry to people who tomorrow are going to be al-Qaeda. And that's, you know, that's been their clear motivation. 
there have been operations by the Saudis and their partners, the UAE, against al-Qaeda strongholds in Yemen, but it's not the major part of their mission. And there's a lot of risk uh, that as the war continues, it just creates space for ISIS, which has also come up there, and al-Qaeda to expand their control, expand their recruitment. Because, you know, there are going to be more and more poor and starving and homeless, wandering Yemenis, greater recruitment pool. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about our democracy and other, uh, the the U.S. interest in the Middle East and the power of Saudi Arabia. Our guest today is Akbar Shahid Ahmed, who covers U.S. foreign policy for Huffington Post. He's got a lot of experience in covering such issues. And you mentioned a little bit of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. It seems that they are not uh, buddy-buddy with Qatar. How does that all play into this? It's an interesting part of it. There's an allegation by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia that Qatar has supported the Houthis. Outside experts don't buy that. The Qataris were actually part of the Saudi-led coalition attacking Yemen for years before the Saudis booted them out. Uh, It plays into it as part of this greater assertiveness. The UAE and Saudi Arabia really felt that, look, the U.S. is withdrawing from the region. It wants to make a deal with Iran. Uh, in their minds, it wasn't just a nuclear deal to limit the nuclear program. In their minds, it was kind of a strategic bargain. They thought it was ah. President Obama saying to Iran, well, we're okay with you doing whatever you want to do. Obama officials would say that definitely was not the case. Um, so they felt we have to take matters into our own hands. And who do we dislike? We dislike Iran, so let's try to pummel them in Yemen. And who's the other people we dislike? The Muslim Brotherhood, this group I was talking about earlier of kind of really diffuse, really different branches and different iterations around the world. But Qatar has historically been seen as friendly towards the Brotherhood, uh, seeing it as more likely to be a future movement in the Arab world because it's kind of more populist than, say, these monarchies. Hmm. And it does seem that, well, people are probably tired of regular listeners are hearing me say, the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. <laughs> you, you bomb people like that, you destroy people, you only recruit for the other side. It's it's just incredible uh, to me how we, we just don't learn that. And talking about the, the Iran deal, the, there are many on the Trump side which seethe with anger. They're just like foaming at the mouth about the Iran nuclear deal that President Obama and one of our best secretaries of state, I will say, John Kerry, made. They have said they want to rip it up. What is the Saudi position? Why is this so important? I mean, it seems like it's a decent deal. We keep them from developing nuclear weapons, which I kind of thought was in our interest. Why is it so important to the Saudis? The Saudis on this issue their public messaging is very absolutist. They'll essentially say, you can't negotiate with Iran because they are not reasonable or rational. Which sort of begs the question, okay, if you don't think they're reasonable or rational, then how do you think pummeling them is going to make them stop doing what you don't want them to do, (laughs) right? But the the Saudi crown prince and de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, who's currently visiting the United States, he's in New York, until tomorrow, uh, he has twice called the supreme leader of Iran Hitler, you know, and he sort of says, he draws into theology and he says, well, Iranians are Shia, this uh, smaller branch of Islam, uh, 
the Shia believe in sort of uh, an end-time savior, this person called the Mehdi, who is going to come back. So he sort of makes this claim that, well, the Iranians are just waiting for the apocalypse anyway. They don't want to live in a world of peace and stability. Mm. So if they tell you that they don't want to have a nuke, that's a lie. Um, oh. It's <laughs> That's kind of nuts. <laughs> it's, it's, it's extreme. Yes, it really is. Now, the Saudi government, and its affiliates. And we're talking about Saudi power in Washington. And I feel like the uh, Netanyahu government of the state of Israel has much more power in Washington than they do on their chunk of real estate called the state of Israel. But that's, you know, that's, I suppose, well, that's a significant factor too. The, the Saudi government and its affiliates have spent millions of dollars on uh, U.S. legislation, lobbying and public relations firm. Five lobby and PR firms were hired in 2015 alone by the Saudi government, signaling a stepped-up focus on ties with Washington. The Saudi government, embassy, and government-controlled entities have been contracting with U.S. consulting firms for more than 30 years. Why is this? Why, why is our relation with them so important? Is it just the military? I think it's a real security concern because they know that their own forces are not capable of defending them if they do face any kind of serious invasion or security challenge. Um, particularly, you, know, you mentioned 30 years, the Iranian Revolution in 1979 really made them think, well, what, what if we have an internal uprising? What if we have a neighbor that decides to provoke something? Uh, it's also important to remember in the American context that the Saudis know they're not very well liked, you know? So their, their best bet is to have a relationship in the shadows. That's historically been their view. In the shadows, in Washington, in these smoke-filled chambers, because they know they're not going to win popular support for a regime that chops uh-huh. people's hands off. Um, it's interesting that they're trying to change their attack now, and the prince you know, has done 60 Minutes and is trying to sell this version of moderate liberal Islam, but traditionally it's been America as a whole is not going to like us, so we better make Washington like us, because otherwise we're not going to have this powerful international patron we feel we need. Oh, very interesting. Uh, is this, the current Saudi regime, and they're pretty new, their, their relations with our new president, are, is it significantly different from those from uh, prior American administrations? A, a quote I got last year from a former State Department official that I really liked was he said, yes, well, they recognize each other. They have the same interior designer. You know, and so the aesthetics, I think, really do matter for the Saudis and for Trump. You know, Trump is very big on his first family. Uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner traveled with him when he went to Saudi Arabia. So I think that really works well for them. It does a, does a kind of personal intimacy maybe there, an understanding. Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, has become very close to the Saudi crown prince. They're not that far apart in age either. Uh, so the pers- yeah, the personal contours of the relationship are definitely different. Um, because even President George W. Bush, yeah, had a long experience with the Saudis uh, through the oil industry in Texas. But it wasn't anything like what we're seeing here. You know, President Trump, when the crown prince was in Washington, said, well, your father, what a great man, and you, what a great guy, what a great friend. It's different. Yeah, I would say it's different. Does that, does that translate to a real difference in terms of policy? The U.S. government is a very large entity, and U.S. interests don't shift dramatically president to president. Um, so not in a huge way so far. Hmm. Yeah, we, we've always been kind of tight with them, I guess. And right. The, the Texas thing, oil, big oil. Speaking of Texas, uh, 
It is rumored that the Saudis were instrumental in getting Secretary of State Rex Tillerson fired. What is known about this? What would be the Saudi interest in doing so? Well, they hated Rex. Um, they, well, they, huh. they didn't like Secretary Tillerson. They saw him as... Um, you know, Tillerson had a long experience in the region, personally, through his work with Exxon. And he, so, so his view of the region was not you know, necessarily pro-Saudi. He sort of tried to hear all sides because he had to do business with all sides. When this dispute broke out between Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, really initiated by the Saudi UAE side last summer, Tillerson was seen as too conciliatory. Uh, President Trump came out and criticized Qatar. He didn't break relations with Qatar, which is what they really wanted. He didn't do that. And I think the U.S. State Department, you know, apparatus, defense department, all of it, prevented him from doing that. I think he, it was considered. But Secretary Tillerson was sort of urging mediation and negotiations, which they really didn't want in that thinking. Uh, in that thinking, they've got to be assertive. They've got to take matters into their own hands. And they feel force and harsh measures are the only things that will work. So they really dislike Tillerson. And they, and they dislike the fact that they were expected to deal with the traditional U.S. government interagency process. They see, you know, they see another royal family in the United States, and they think, well, why not just keep it in the family, keep it personal? <laughs> why have any note-takers uh, or, or long procedures? <laughs> why? Well, sorry for laughing. Why have any note-takers? I suppose you're right. And, you know, the Saudis don't appear to much like democracy. Our government, gov current government doesn't seem to much like democracy. It's so inconvenient. And... It, it, it does. I've heard that part of the reason the much publicized so-called anti-corruption campaign of uh, the new uh, prince, crown prince, was to preempt any possible rising discontent. That was a fascinating procedure, arresting all these other family members and, and right. locking them up in the Ritz-Carlton and places like that. What can you tell us about that? Fascinating, very different kind of uh, political turn of events. Right. And it's, I, it's the sort of thing one could imagine, you know, a, a President Trump really appreciating, actually. He's all about power and these big figures. So to him, you know, he's, he's been supportive of authoritarian leaders around the world, not just the Saudis. Um, but to him, why lock up a distant when you can lock up someone who's really rich and powerful? The, the crown prince locked up the most successful and high-profile Saudi royal businessman, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, uh, and reportedly tortured him and many others like oh, him. Yeah. So, so I think this was something they, they did to really make a statement and to, and to show the world no one is untouchable in the new Saudi Arabia except the crown prince. Um, it's a message that I think was, did not come across the way they wanted it to because, as you were saying, they're not democratic. They're not doing procedures. You know, okay, if you want to show global investors and global governments that there are legitimate corruption concerns and cases, show us the case file. You know, show us the evidence, show us the judicial process. Yeah. They haven't done any of that. They sort of say, well, we've done settlements with these people, and now some of them are home, and that's all you need to know. But they're members, I mean, aren't they part of the same wide family, a lot of them? Yeah, uh, many, many of the folks who were put into the Ritz-Carlton slash prison were royal family members, like Prince Al-Walid or the son of the former king, King Abdullah. Uh, but there are different branches of the family. And I think for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he cares really about his own branch. You know, it's him, it's his brother, who is currently the ambassador to the United States, and others don't really figure 
Um, and he really is angry, I think, at the sense of entitlement many members of the royal family had to state coffers. Wow. That said, he doesn't explain where his money comes from either. Well, you know, I'm reminded of uh, the Trump family. I mean, Jared Kushner, his daughter, whom he's obviously very attracted to, which is kind of sickening, to put it mildly. But it's, you know, his family. They want kind of family rule. I can see why they kind of get along. Now, there is some discontent in the United States with our policy uh, towards Saudi Arabia. As more and more people find out, and it's finally making the network news, the U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. Back in 2016, both Democratic candidates, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, expressed their support for a bipartisan bill which would allow family members of 9-11 victims and other terrorist attacks to sue foreign governments such as Saudi Arabia for restitution. How did that play with the Saudi family? Uh, That really scared them. Um, Bernie Sanders is not someone with whom they had a previous relationship, but Hillary Clinton was. Uh, President Obama, who at the time tried to veto that legislation unsuccessfully, went through. But all the leaders that they knew, you know, Congress overwhelmingly supported this. Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, people on the other side, McConnell. So for the Saudis, it was a huge wake-up call. They never expected something like that to pass, and they're still trying to lobby against it. It's still a major issue for them. Uh, but, but they haven't been successful so far. President Trump was supportive of the bill. Obviously, he's had a number of policy flip-flops, so there's nothing preventing him from <laughs> flip-flopping on it. But it would be very politically unpopular to sort of say, well, sorry, 9-11 victims, we're taking this away from you now. Just yesterday, a judge here in New York actually ruled that the, the Saudis cannot try to dismiss one of the lawsuits being pursued wow. under that bill. Wow, because you know, it's pretty well known that the actual attackers on 9-11 were related to... Uh Saudi Arabia, whether they're related to the royal government, I certainly don't know, but they were Saudis. And much more recently, there's been action in the Senate. People are, as I say, are starting to get concerned about, uh, I almost said Vietnam, oh, amazing, ah, the, uh, the, the, the Saudi war in Yemen. And in the early days of the, of the protest against uh, the American war in Vietnam, it wasn't very well known either. So we're sort of like 1965-66, where the resistance is just growing. There was Senate Resolution 54, which is supposed to stop U.S. military involvement in the war in Yemen. It was intended to evoke the War Powers Act and the U.S. Constitution to withdraw U.S. support from Saudi Arabia in their war against Yemen. It was sponsored, an interesting group of sponsors, Bernie Sanders, independent of, of uh, Vermont, uh, Utah's conservative Republican Mike Lee and Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut. It did not pass, to no one's surprise, but it did quite well. What can you tell us about this very recent legislative effort? Really remarkable. Uh, I, I've been covering it quite closely, and there were a lot of sort of bumps in the road in the run-up. I had a scoop on this Defense Department letter they sent, and and the Defense Department under Jim Mattis was heavily involved in lobbying against this bill and saying we've got to continue American support for the bombing campaign. And that took a lot of forms. There, were letter, there was a letter that Mattis sent to all senators. There was a briefing. He personally came to the Senate on the day of the vote and met with all senators, which is... Who did this? That doesn't happen. Um, who was this that met with the uh, Senate? Yeah, sorry. Who, who was this that met with them? Uh, Mattis, Secretary Mattis uh-huh. himself, came to the Senate 
and met with every senator. Wow. I mean, he met in, he went to the Democratic caucus lunch and the Republican caucus lunch two hours before the vote. Wow. To personally lobby to continue the war. And even then, 44 senators voted to okay. consider, to at least consider, we're not saying they voted to end the war, but they voted to consider a proposal to end the war, which is really large. Uh, that included some Republicans, surprising Republicans, Susan Collins of Maine, uh, Moran of Kansas, um, so there, there was an interesting kind of breakdown here of the Trump administration's lobbying effort. It didn't do as well as they, were, they had thought. Wow. Yeah, 44 senators voting in favor of it. That's certainly a good, uh, powerful first step. How do supporters in Washington justify our participation in the war? I mean, it's not winning any friends or influencing people in the general area. One argument is this one of we have to sustain our influence, and if we weren't involved in the war, then it would be even bloodier and messier and produce more potential al-Qaeda recruits. That's a big one. Um, others go at it from other, other sort of angles. One line of argument is to say, well, Congress doesn't have the power to take this away, and the War Powers Act is not something that you can use in this way. Mike Lee, the Republican you mentioned from Utah, is a staunch constitutionalist. He really would say, well, that's Garbage. That's clearly not the intent. The Congress article, um, you know, section Article One, Section Eight says Congress has the right to to authorize any wars. You right. can't just be in a war. So then the Pentagon says, well, we're actually not at war. So there's a lot of kind of tortured and twisted logic coming out of supporters of continuing the war. There, there is an argument be made that definitely Saudi Arabia is under risk from the Houthis. Uh, we've seen that with the uh-huh. repeated strikes at civilian centers. But does the response to that have to be this? bombing campaign. Well, clearly, a number of U.S. presidents have been quite cozy with the Saudi royal family. What about Congress itself? Now, they can't get campaign contributions from the Saudis, but what about Saudis' influence in Congress uh, currently and in recent times? There are a lot of levers they can use. Campaign contributions are hard, but there are levers they can use, for instance, congressional delegations, um, taking congressional staff out to Saudi Arabia, kind of making sure they have a lovely time, go to all the best hotels, yeah. uh, have great food, are driven around in you know, limos and things like that. So impressing them in that way is important. Um, I think the connection to APAC and sort of some of the other supporters of the right-wing Israeli government has been really helpful for the Saudis recently um, because historically it wasn't that attractive to be close to the Saudi lobby, but the Israel lobby has a lot more access and friends. What is their interest, APEC's interest, in supporting? They would say their interest is uh, the Iranian, you know, pushing back against oh, the Iranian right. intervention in Yemen. And I think they also, they really see Saudi Arabia as a force for stability for Israel. You know, it's a known quantity, and it's been Western-friendly for decades. Who knows what else could arise? So we've got to ensure the stability of that regime and that kingdom. Yeah, well, I don't think that'll work forever, but that's just my opinion. Hmm. On the international stage, what is the legal status of the Saudi war on Yemen? Certainly, they have a basis for saying that they they need, um, you know, they have legitimate self-defense concerns, uh, but it, it's not been, it's never been officially sort of authorized by the UN Security Council or anything like that. And UN reports, there is a UN panel of experts that produces regular reports on the situation in Yemen. UN reports have not been kind. They have 
pointed out repeatedly that the Saudis have violated international law on targeting civilians, on um, how they've conducted that kind of blockade of food and aid and medicine, and then their partners, the United Arab Emirates, have actually faced allegations from the UN of running torture camps and torture cells uh, that some other reporting has said the U.S. is actually benefiting from. So they've come in for a lot of international criticism and scrutiny for this. What about the other uh, big guerrillas these days, China and Russia? What if, what's their role in all this, Any? What's their position? China has sort of stayed out of it. They do rely heavily on the Saudis for uh, energy imports. Um, they've stayed out of it. But Russia, the Russians and the Saudis have grown closer in recent years. They've had more mm. engagement, more dialogue. For the Russians, it's sort of a, it's sort of a non-issue. They don't particularly care. Uh-huh. Um, they're not, you know, the most moved by images of suffering civilians, so they're not, they're not really pushing it. Um, but certainly, the Russians have supported efforts to end the war. Well, they have their own oil, that's for sure. But places like Sweden and Britain, they're yeah. also big arms exporters. They're taking action with regard to the Saudi war on Yemen. W- what are they doing? And, and maybe we can replicate some of their efforts. Tell us about Sweden and Britain on this. Yeah, remarkable steps. Uh, in Britain, it's actually now the official position of the the chief opposition party, the Labour Party, which is widely favored to win yes. the next election whenever they have it. It is now actually their official position that they would not approve arms exports to Saudi Arabia because of its conduct in the war in Yemen, which is remarkable. That's never been you know, the official position of one of the parties before. In Sweden, they're introducing tighter export controls that we, it remains to be seen how it would be implemented, but it's driven by concerns over situations like Yemen, and it would have to be taken into consideration. And then we've actually seen Germany cut off all arms supplies, wow. potentially be used in Yemen. Um, and a couple of the other European countries are considering that too. So there's certainly a consciousness of, well, you might continue your bombing, we don't want you to do it with our bombs. That's very fascinating because they they have similar interests in you know doing business uh, with the, the Middle East, and yet they're taking it very differently. Is there? I mean, that that recent Senate resolution was 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 hopeful. It was a really good start. What's your sense of movement in Congress? They always wait for uh, you know they put their finger to the wind and see how the public is reacting. They also have uh, the interests of money, their campaign funding. What, what's your sense? Is there movement in Congress on this? I think there's a growing awareness that this kind of line we've historically heard that President Trump is pushing to of of arms sales as crucial to jobs in the U.S. There's a growing awareness that actually that might not be the case um, because increasingly buyers like Saudi Arabia are requiring weapons companies, even American companies like Boeing or Lockheed Martin, to go and build a lot of this material in Saudi because they want the training and the jobs for their Saudi workers. So I think there's a growing awareness that actually these things are not untouchable uh, and maybe we can do something about it. I think you're, you're likely to see more congressional movement uh, and we've already seen senators, even Republicans, pushing the Trump administration for more information on the American role. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think there's a lot of grassroots activism and interest in it, too. Yeah, I think it's it's starting out like in the mid-60s here. And uh, I, I do wonder about, you know, can they win? Can the Saudis actually win? I, I'm sure they want to portray that they can win, but do you, can they have some sort of a victory at some point? It looked like last December they might have gotten really close when the previous president of Yemen, actually, who was aligned with the Houthis, said, I'm not going to work fight with 
the Houthis anymore oh, right. and we're going to work yeah. with the Saudis. And it looked like, wow, they can create a huge push and have a settlement that's favorable to them. Then he got killed. So <laughs> now most experts don't believe there's any way for the Saudis to fight their way to a victory and are saying, well, the best thing you can do is have a negotiated settlement. The Saudi view is, fine, we'll eventually have a negotiated settlement, but we need to be sure that's on terms favorable to us. So we will keep fighting until we feel we are at that point. Well, if what would you advise American citizens who, who don't think that the current U.S. policy in Saudi Arabia and the war against Yemen is such a good thing? What can people do? Do you see any uh, legislation coming down the pike soon? What, what can people do? I don't think there's legislation coming soon, um, but I think, you know, there's been, there's been really interesting activist movement on this. So there have been protests in Washington, but there's also been a ton of phone calls. Uh, and there were, you know, 10 Democrats who voted with Republicans to prevent this Bernie Sanders, Chris Murphy, Mike Lee effort from going forward so folks can try to talk to Whoa. people like that. Um, that's been interesting. And I think that, that sort of making clear that this is something on people's radar is, is really effective for a lot of the activist groups, um, particularly because there, there are also Yemeni communities. So there's also oh, a real effort by the Yemeni community here in New York or in other places to sort of say, look, these are our cousins and our family members who are being killed. Let us explain the war to you. Um, and that, I think, is, is really helpful for Americans to better understand the human cost of what's happening. And we certainly can make a difference. They, they want us to feel powerless, but we are not powerless. We can make a difference. We have, and we will in the future. Well, this has been very, very interesting. You've, you've, you've shed a lot of light into this uh, dark area. Akbar Shahid Ahmed, uh, I guess people can read more of your stuff on Huffington Post. Yep, absolutely. Thank uh, you so much. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for being with us. And uh, hopefully we can all get involved and uh, dig into the secret life of Arabia. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah.